Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, in the Arts News Culture Wars episode this week, a controversial exhibit at a Holocaust museum in Maitland, Florida, has stirred a backlash after opening the George Floyd exhibit commemorating his police murder on Memorial Day and raising larger issues who gets to have a copyright on the word Holocaust. And why don't the centuries of mass racist genocide of people of color count? Over 114 million Native Americans and millions of African Americans in the Middle Passage and beyond into the present to this day. My goal is for people to simply come through the exhibit, to hear these stories, to look at these faces, and to be open to considering the world in a new way. Reporting on location from the Holocaust Memorial Center about the John Nader photography exhibit in question is Ezzy Castro for WKMG-TV Orlando. When you walk inside the Holocaust Center in Maitland, you'll be able to see some of the faces of those who mourn the death of George Floyd, a black man who died in police custody in Minneapolis on Memorial Day. His death sparked protests across the city and around the country. The portraits captured by photographer John Noltner. When George Floyd was killed, that happened uh, 11.6 miles north of my house. And I knew with a piece of my mind's goal being to hear voices that aren't always heard as well as they should be. I knew that I wanted to go up to that site. Just days after Floyd's death, Noltner came to the site where dozens were gathering, many who were still trying to process the tragedy in their community. And he decided to capture the tears behind his lens. What was the vibe? What was the feeling that you were feeling when when you arrived to that location? There was clearly pain and frustration and mourning happening, but it was a space that was open to anybody who wanted to show up and understand what was going on. The exhibit shows 45 strangers, each of them sharing their own message to the world. And one of the portraits that you can see here is the father of Michael Brown Jr., who was fatally shot by police in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri. So my goal is for people to simply come through the exhibit, to hear these stories, to look at these faces, uh, and to be open to considering the world in a new way. And the exhibit is free to the public and will be open on Sundays and Mondays here at the Holocaust Center. For more information, you can find out more on clickorlando.com. In Maitland, Ezzy Castro getting results, News 6. And also in the news, Andrew Cuomo received a special Emmy Award, quote, in recognition of his leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic and his masterful use of television to inform and calm people around the world, unquote. Actor Ben Stiller razzed Cuomo that his brother newscaster Chris Cuomo was jealous as Chris thought he should be winning the Emmys as he was the one on TV. The governor zinged back. And to Ben Stiller, I only say New York tough means one more thing. It means Ben I know where you live. And coming up next on the show. Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist leader, has returned to the United States after an exile of 15 years. I'm delighted to be back in the United States my hunting ground of 35 years. The country where I had my innings in the social and economic struggle and where I decided to devote myself to the presentation of anarchism, a social philosophy which aims at the emancipation economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. Emma Goldman was perhaps the best known of the many immigrant anarchists who had come from countries all over Europe. Italians, Russians, Germans, and Spaniards had been converted to the ideas of anarchism 
first preached by the Russians, Michael Bakunin and Peter Kropotkin. The immigrant anarchists envisioned a world without leaders, a system of mutual aid made up of interlocking federations and communes. The anarchists hoped their persistent educational efforts would pay off when the working classes would spontaneously rise up and overthrow their oppressors. These immigrants created a whole self-contained culture with their own schools, colonies, newspapers, and publications. Together with other immigrant groups, they led anti-war protests during the First World War and were active in fighting the rising tide of fascism during the 1930s and 40s. And they were also the prime targets of government repression, earmarked for wholesale arrests, deportation, and lifelong harassment. What do you think about Russia, Miss Goldman? I consider Russia and America the most interesting countries in the world today. How about Hitler? I don't know him and don't want to. What is your opinion of Italy? Beautiful country minus Mussolini. Ms. Goldman, should the government here object to your speeches of anarchism, would you change them or leave the country? I will leave the country rather than deny my ideas. I preferred to stick to my gun. And yes, that was the voice of famed political leader Emma Goldman, arrested and deported along with thousands of leftist immigrants during that notorious other mass deportation, J. Edgar Hoover's Palmer Raids, in 1919, at the time of what is known as this country's first Red Scare. And Emma Goldman actually figures in two presentations coming up on this show. First, Jessica Hecht has been in movies and on TV pretty much everywhere, from Seinfeld, The Wayans Brothers, The Heidi Chronicles, Friends, Law and Order, ER, Woody Allen's Whatever Works, Madam Secretary, Special, and Nurse Jackie, to name a few. And playing Emma Goldman and Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar, which she'll be talking about as our guest coming up. But Hecht has apparently taken on female characters as well with strange lovers, in particular as Gretchen in a turbulent secret relationship in Breaking Bad with Walter White, alias Brian Cranston, and in her latest film, The Atlantic City Story, hooking up with a younger man afflicted with economically devastating millennial misery. First, a bit of that stormy affair with Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. You didn't tell anyone. You didn't tell Elliot. Not yet. What does that mean? That means exactly what it means. That's a determination I have yet to make. All right, fair enough. I can appreciate that. All right. First, let me say I very much regret involving you in this. This was, this entire thing was unfortunate. Unfortunate. And I apologize deeply. Thank you. Now please tell me why you did it. That's not really at issue here. Why would you do as I said, I will clear this up. Just please allow me to do this in my own way, in my own time, all right? I will explain the whole thing to them. And while you're at it, explain it to me. I don't owe you an explanation. I owe you an apology, and I have apologized. I am very sorry, Gretchen. There. I've apologized twice now. I'm humbly sorry. Three times. You involve us in your lie, and you sit here and tell me that that is none of my business. Yeah. That's pretty much the size of it. What happened to you? Really, Walt? What happened? Because this isn't you. And what would you know 
about me, Gretchen? What would your presumption about me be exactly? That I should go begging for your charity and you waving your checkbook around like some... Oh, God, that's beautifully done. You, Boy, you are always the picture of innocence. You left me. The picture of innocence, you, just sweetness and light. You left me. Newport for the July weekend, you and my father and my brothers. And I go up to our room and you're packing your bags, barely talking. What, 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 what did I dream? All that? That's your excuse. You walked away. You, you abandoned us, me. I don't even know what to say to you. I don't even know where to begin. Sorry for you, Walt. You. And now, a scene from the Atlantic City story, then Jessica Hecht. Uh, please call me back when you get this. I'm home now. It's about 8.45. I don't know where you are. Was I supposed to meet you somewhere? I don't remember us talking about plans. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm home now. Well, call me back when you get this. I, I remember I ran away from home once when I was a kid. I didn't even have a suitcase. I used a box instead. And then I ran away into the backyard and hid behind a tree. I didn't think about food or where I would live or how to survive. I just figured that would all come naturally. I sat behind the tree for two hours. And no one noticed that I was gone. How are you? Okay. Now, the Atlantic City story is about the connection between two contrasting generations. What can you say about that and the dead-end prospects of millennials today? Oh, that's a beautiful question. My goodness, it's painful to look at that. And that lack, it was it was so painful to actually think about that character's lack of both ambition or, or clarity about what his future was. He felt so defeated by things, and understandably, but I think a lot of people feel, a lot of millennials do truly feel, um, feel like their options have run out before before they actually have. And I felt so pained by that and so interested in her attempt to help him and then and then her realization that she couldn't, which I thought was kind of mature, you know. I mean I don't know if actually it's this age age old issue of women thinking they can change they can fix the man, mm-hmm. even though he was a boy really. Mm-hmm. Um but this feeling that I can help him and then her own incredible vulnerability in the face of, oh, gosh, someone's doing construction outside. So, yeah, I'll just talk for another minute about the millennials because I I was so fascinated by the idea that he, she was dealing with somebody who was, for all intents and purposes, the same age as her son, her, her kids. And, and she both wanted to fix him as many women do or help him as many women do want to fix man that they're with, but also... Um, but also, he was grappling with so many issues that were just simply about being a millennial and feeling hopeless. And I um, and 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 I was speaking before about this idea that your options had run out at, a, at an age that people of my generation, in no way, think there. I know people of my generation feel like your options go on and on until 
you're 75, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and rightly so. <laughs> I have 20 years to go, but um, but <laughs> nonetheless, I was um, I was fascinated with with that aspect of it. What was it about this story that drew you in? <laughs> I, I think this idea of a middle-aged woman seeking some <laughs> slightly unknowable <laughs> experience, you know, that um, that she's pining for but can't really articulate um, is, is interesting to me. And also the Atlantic City-ness of the whole thing, my... My dad was a big card player, and I spent a little bit of time in casinos, and they fascinate me and repel me. So, so, so I was kind of intrigued by the idea that she was drawn to them as well. And what yeah. about your character, Jane? What intrigued you about her that led you to want to play her? Well, I, I loved the way Henry wrote. I thought he wrote in a pretty honest way in terms of the way people talk and the way they sort of try to find themselves, and um, also the filmmaker and how sensitive I thought he was. And then um, it was, a, you know, it was on the page. The story itself I found pretty intriguing. And then when I met Mike and and started really trying to talk to Henry about what he was after, I just felt it was a very rare experience to be able to create something that was kind of internally honest to me. And yeah. mu- and music plays somewhat of a character as well with the soundtrack. What are your thoughts about that? Oh yeah, I think it is a character in the in the film. I think that Henry felt that there was there was this attempt to kind of soothe ourselves, you know. And the where my character Jane goes to this place in such hope of finding herself and finding a little sense of um, you know identity. And um, and there's both the soundtrack in her head and the soundtrack in um, in the head of uh, you know sort of in, in, in sort of the, the the head of the environment. And I think he played around with the idea that there's not a lot of quiet in this film. That there's mm. that there's a, 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 that the, the sort of chaos in our own heads um, is is sort of relentless, sometimes soothing, but relentless nonetheless. He has great taste in music, too, so I was happy with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, on another note, you're known quite well for another contentious romantic relationship with Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. Yeah. What did you figure out about playing Gretchen Schwartz and being part of that relationship? Well, you know, it's like so interesting when people ask about, I think, in general, romantic relationships on screen because it's, it's, it's really about chemistry a lot of times and how you play off of one another. And in both cases, Mike and Brian, Brian is just incredibly um, accessible as an actor, just emotionally so present. And so you're really bouncing off of them. The the most important thing and the interesting thing in, in the experience of working on Breaking Bad, I did, I think, the first or second episode of that show. So I was, I was with it before it became... The Breaking Bad that we know, this, this, this before its fame was um, was was recognized, and so I felt quite comfortable with Brian. I was, I think, if I had entered it in the in the final season, I would be somewhat intimidated. But I love acting with him. He's just so available, and and for our scenes, so angry. Except for this very very first scene we played from when we were like in college together, and. So I, I, I think a lot of the dynamic of those romantic relationships was just about really allowing myself to react as, um, as freely as, as I possibly could. And, uh, and, and that was, uh, I'm, I'm an actor that sometimes gets really nervous. So that was a genius gift that I was able to keep my cool while acting with him. And again, I think it's because I started the show early on. When I when everybody was sort of figuring out who they were, and so I didn't feel um, I didn't uh, feel intimidated. Yeah. And speaking of playing opposite Brian Cranston and getting to know him, would you say yeah. he's anything like Walter White in real life? No. Oh my God. In real life, he's so he's like a really Hamish. That's a very Jewish expression, but he's like a really nice guy that is also so funny and bawdy and very open hearted and. 
the total family man, adore, just adoring family man, but also a great storyteller and a very easy guy, um, but crazy funny. Yeah. I mean, not that Walter White is not funny, but there's an open-heartedness to Brian that I don't think I would identify Walter White as having. Now, another yeah. unusual role of yours, you played political activist Emma Goldman in J. Edgar, directed by <laughs> Clint Eastwood. What intrigued you about Emma Goldman that led you to portray her in the movie? Oh, well, my uh, my grandmother was a socialist in the Bronx, at first a communist and then a socialist, and was part of, you know, many rallies in, in Union Square, and really would have been so proud of me for mm-hmm. having anything to do with Emma Goldman. Um, and many of the people are idolized, I shouldn't say new, but idolized many of the people of that era that Emma Goldman would have known as well. So this is total, it was just a gift. And the, of course, Clint Eastwood, it, you know, you, you, just, you just can't possibly uh, say no to having an experience of watching him direct or being directed by him, which, which is utterly fascinating because he doesn't say very much. And for that part, I was reading a lot of her literature and, and you know, we sort of just looking at, he, he basically, it got cut down a, a fair amount in the film, but there was basically a long speech of hers that I had to memorize. And, and so I just found myself sort of in a trance on the set going over that speech in my head. And, and then you wait a while, and he doesn't even say action. Anyone who knows about, you know, great filmmakers knows this. He just just sort of starts. People just start acting. You know, this kind of kind of identifying moment when everybody is, or excuse me, identifiable moment when everybody sort of goes. And I just found myself so enthralled because it was another circumstance where I felt like I was able to stay in this little zone and, um, and, and you know, sort of be in the moment, for lack of a better expression. And, and again, you know, I think a lot of roles that we take, people take, um, are inspired by a little voice in your head that says, oh, your grandmother would be really proud of that, or your your father would be really, the older you get, and these people are no longer around, you're channeling some, some relationship with people in your family or friends that are no longer here that kind of either un- inspire your, your choices or inspire, you, you know, the choices you make as an actor, both in the character and what characters you, you desire to play. So that's definitely one that, that would have made my grandma proud, yeah. Uh, and getting back to the Atlantic City story, uh, uh, yeah. what what went through your mind and getting inside your character's head to play Jane when she says, I don't really know who I am? What did that mean to you? You know, I, I that means a lot to me. I think that means a kind of honesty. There's such a, there's so many, so many real breaks we have from, um, feeling connected to where we are in our lives and especially now obviously during COVID when we have no you know many of us especially actors have had nothing to anchor them and I think she's somebody who is so profoundly lonely and so grounded in things that related to her journey with her family and her children that um, it was just a very it, 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 it was such a plain spoken expression of being at a juncture where you, you don't know how you're going to go forward or even what path you would want to take. And I think about that now a lot, this idea that we, we you know, we travel through a year with all of these ambitions and several markers by which we can, like, see whether we're on track. And if you have no markers suddenly and you're just sort of someone's wife, but that makes you feel terribly empty um, I gave. I just kept giving her so tremendous credit for for pursuing <laughs> some other level of, of um, you know identity, even if it was somebody who hung out in this casino. And that was kind of a funny thing that we saw many, many people there during that time that whose identity was about being in the casino, trying to make money, sort of communicating with their uh, sort of band of regulars. And um, in, in, in Jane's mind, I'm sure at that moment those people had those people had more of a sense of who they were than she did. Yeah, whether that's a desirable person to be or not, at least they know, right? Mm, yeah. 
And I wanted to ask you, are you working on anything next? I just finished. I just got back from Los Angeles, and I finished the second season of this Netflix show I do called Special. And uh, so, yeah, I felt incredibly lucky to, to finish a season. We stopped March 13th, like so many people. And um, and uh, we were able to go back for the last month and complete it. So that's it's called Special, and it'll come out on Netflix um, probably in April. Yeah. Okay. And is there anything else coming up for you that you've already done? or? Not already done, but I'm about to also do um, uh, uh, a recording. Uh, and it's not Audible. It's for Pushkin, which is which is Malcolm Gladwell's pod, podcast company um, of uh, of Ironweed by William Kennedy, and that we've been developing, or I've been developing for a while with Mark Ruffalo. That beautiful story by that won the Pulitzer Prize way back in the '80s about um, a group of homeless people in in Albany, New York, in the '30s. And so we're um, working on developing that as a recording, and we'll do that in a few weeks as well. Oh, wow, that sounds, looking forward to that. Oh, good, it's beautiful, yeah, thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much, Jessica Hecht, for calling into our show. Oh, it's such a pleasure, you you take really good care of yourself. And you too, with this pandemic. Yeah, oh, thank you, you're so kind, all right, take good care. You too, bye. Thanks, bye, bye. And the Atlantic City story recently premiered at the Denver Film Festival. And next up on Arts Express, Bro on the Global Television Beat, taking a look at the sitcom One Day at a Time and what it has to do with immigration and the census, and Rita Moreno and the Golden Girls. Did you decide what we're watching for movie night? No. It's like there's nothing good on Netflix anymore. Hi, I'm from the census. Mom, why did you do that? A guy wanting a list of Latinos in my house? No thanks. The census is important for communities of color. We have to participate. It determines congressional seats and federal funding, and Latinos are always Oh, at this point, I'd rather be murdered. Open the door. Hi. Hey. Sorry about the whole door in your face thing. Okay, okay, I've had worse. I've been bit by a toddler, tased by a grandma. 2010, I was insulted by a racist parrot. (laughs) Anyway, uh, my name's Brian, and uh, this is only gonna take a few minutes. So you're, you're Penelope Alvarez? Yes, I am, and I am the mother of Elena and Alex. Oh, okay, that's good, and this is your husband? Oh, God, no. (laughs) No. So you're single. No husband, no same-sex partner, no unmarried partner, no same-sex unmarried partner. And now we know all the different ways I'm single. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, I'm very happy. Check that off. Well, wow, there's no box for happy. <laughs> This is Bro on the global television beat, Breaking Glass with the best of world TV. Today's episode is audience favorite, One Day at a Time, about a Hispanic single mother family. The show is a revival of a Norman Lear series in the 70s, which focused on a white middle-class single mother family. The transposition here is to make the family Cuban, consisting of the breadwinner and mother Lupe, her feminist lesbian daughter Elena, their trying-to-be-normal teenage son Alex, and Rita Moreno as the matriarch Lydia, whose fiery and sexually explicit diatribes recalls any of the characters from The Golden Girls, only with a Latin touch. The series is unabashedly old style, with a loud and extremely exuberant laugh track, jokes required on about every third line, and a lesson learned each week that makes it a pre-Seinfeld sitcom. There's something oddly refreshing about the antiquated nature of the series. Rather than being hip and sophisticated, it's emotional, touching, and wears its heart on its sleeve. What really makes it work far better, in fact, than stylized, sophisticated comedies such as Netflix's Gentified, is, and this is borrowed from Norman Lear's 70s series, its topicality in terms of dealing with questions that are pressing for Latino and immigrant communities. The new season begins with a cameo by Ray Romano of Everybody Loves Raymond as a census taker and a debate within the family about whether Latinos, often undocumented, should respond and be counted. In the opening, the whole family airs this debate, 
given currency at the moment by Trump's attempt, ruled illegal, to force respondents to identify whether or not they are citizens. The result of the debate is that they choose to be counted, since this is important for state and federal aid. In the second episode, rather than a pithy lesson, Lupe learns that she need not cling to her miserly ways and that she can afford more comforts for her family. The lessons taught here are ones that affect the well-being of these working-class communities as a whole and not simply middle-class adoptive or coping strategies. The series is lucky to be airing at all. Netflix canceled it after three seasons, claiming its Netflix ratings, which no one outside the company is privy to, were too low. As one of the show's actors noted, Netflix, which sometimes saves series which the networks cast aside, in this case canceled the series. The Nielsen ratings, which are incomplete and only count Netflix subscribers hooked up to a television, nevertheless showed the ratings for the series increasing, more than doubling from season one to season three. With the major U.S. networks, when a series was in trouble, letter writing and now social media campaigns often caused the network to change their mind and retain a quirky but impactful show, as happened recently with NBC's Community. Netflix, on the other hand, simply acted based on the cold, hard facts making it, in this case, more ruthless than the networks. In addition, CBS All Access, the digital component of the CBS network, wanted to air the show, but couldn't, because a clause in the Netflix contract forbid the show airing with any of Netflix's streaming competitors. The show was finally revived by Pop TV, a CBS cable channel. CBS, the outlet for the show's first airing in the 1970s, agreed to also air the show on its network after its run on the cable station, granting the show's producer, Sony, two licensing fees and thus making the show more profitable for Sony. Thus are the fortunes of a series with a community point of view and a form that can reach that community. Battered around and only by chance revived in a system that values profit above all else. One day at a time struck back at its former digital home when, in the first scene of season four, Alex complains that he's bored since, quote, there's nothing good on Netflix anymore. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass, and signing off from war-torn Paris. And coming up next... Anarchism in the 1880s and 1890s is probably the largest radical movement among the Jewish immigrants. I'm a man of peace, and that's why I'm an anarchist. It may sound very, very contradictory. And I was never anything else but that anarchist. I believe in the uh, attainability of a, a system of society without government. These immigrants actually were upset by the world that confronted them when they arrived in the United States. They were disappointed. On July the 4th, 1890, they started with the Freie Arbeitsstelle. An anarchist paper spreading the ideas of a society without government, without coercion, without force, without wars. They were revolted by the entire ethic of capitalism. During the 1915 strike, I was arrested 39 times. The raids were made against all radical homes and homes of individuals. It uh, wrecked the office. It, uh, Break the machines. There were anarchist publications, Italian, Spanish. They gave up, you know. They gave up the ship. The Jews are a stubborn lot. We must in our soul believe that justice must prevail. Ultimate human justice for everybody. And that is the ideal that anarchism stands for. Are you still as idealistic? You have to be idealist, otherwise you might as well take a gun and blow your brains out. And those were scenes from the classic documentary, Free Voices of Labor, The Jewish Anarchists. Here's Jack Shalom in a conversation with the filmmaker, Joel Suter. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In 1980, our guest Joel Sucher made a film called Free Voice of Labor, The Jewish Anarchists, 
which was a portrait of immigrant life in the U.S. as seen through the eyes of sweatshop workers who made up the Jewish anarchist movement. Between 1900 and World War I, these Yiddish-speaking anarchists constituted an influential political movement affecting trade unions, newspapers, left-wing culture, and hysteria in the U.S. Now, 40 years later, that film has been re-released. I'm happy to be talking with one of the original directors of Free Voice of Labor, Joel Sucher. Hi, Joel. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing great. Thanks. Joel, what prompted the making of the film and this current re-release? Well, I've been an anarchist since uh, high school, and that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> back in NYU, we were in NYU film school, myself and Stephen Fischler, the other co-director, and we were involved with an anarchist group called Transcendental Students. Uh, we basically were involved in anti-war activities, but were also involved in creating free space within the university because we thought the university was just a factory. Quite successful. And we were met, we were also in Martin Scorsese's uh, film school class at the time, and he kind of encouraged us to use film in a political sense. So, after we graduated, we just uh, felt. Anarchism is something more than just what's currently going on. And we started to look into the background of anarchism and who these anarchists were. We sort of hooked up with a number of different individuals who had been Jewish immigrant anarchists. And these people were quite interesting. You know, you looked at these, some of these people and they seemed like your, gran you know, your grandparents. Except th these grandparents were actually on the streets in the, in the 40s and 50s, you know, protesting and getting involved in action. We also, at the time, in the mid-70s, had gotten a grant from the American Film Institute to do a film on Florence's Tavern. What happened was there was a, a bombing of Florence's Tavern, which kind of destroyed the place and kind of put an end to our uh, hope to do a documentary. We went back to AFI and said, hey, listen, would you mind if we use the money we're getting to do this film on the um, anarchists? Uh -huh. They said, fine. So, it sounds uh, like the, the money was a little more free-flowing back then. <laughs> I wish I could turn on that tap again. No. Yeah, exactly. So well, now, now, the film opens with an annual banquet of Jewish anarchists, and you see the anarchists and their grandchildren enjoying each other's company. Where was the footage of that get-together made? Those were really intriguing events because all of those folks would get together, and they weren't only the Jewish anarchists. Huh. They were the Italian anarchists. Uh, the Spanish anarchists, of course, the Russian anarchists, they would all attend these uh, Stolten reunions. What were the main years of immigration for the Jewish anarchists? It was probably the late 19th century into the early 20th century. You had the waves of immigrant anarchists coming to the States. So mainly before the Russian Revolution. Yeah, I think that, you know, the Russian Revolution was a turning point for many like Emma Goldman because, you know, Immediately, they thought, wow, here's a place where there's going to be a real revolution. Lenin originally had said, all power to the Soviets, all power to the peasants. These were anarchist ideas formulated way back when, the first international with Bakunin. So they were hoping to see this reach fruition in the Soviet Union, but soon it was clear that this wasn't going to happen. I, I want to go more into that history, but let's back up a little bit. The immigrants were not necessarily thrilled to be here. Many were disappointed on arriving in the United States, and they said conditions of labor were worse and more demanding than in the old country. Can you speak a little more about that? Well, the thing is, that, you know, actually, none of the anarchists really believed that it was going to be the paradise, but they actually thought that it would be a, a step above what they had been experiencing with, let's say, in Russia with the Tsar, you know, and the religious persecution as well you know, with the Jews and the pogroms. So they thought at least they would es escape that. But, you know, the reality of the situation was, no, it was a tough place to make a living. You were exploited. This was something that the anarchists immediately reacted to. Mm. One of the highlights of the film for me was the inclusion of the revolutionary Yiddish songs in translation. Now, one of them translates as, Oh, Ellis Island, you gateway to freedom, how overwhelming and frightening you are, such horrors endured. You punished the persecuted without reason. We came with troubles and finally sighted the Statue of Liberty. Here is Ellis Island, you gateway to freedom, and they say, Stop, 
you can go no further. Where did you obtain this material, and who's singing those beautiful, sad Yiddish songs? Zalman Lotek is a great Yiddishist. He's a composer. He's done a lot of work in the theater. He really was our consultant and guide in putting this together. A lot of these songs were adapted from poems. Oh, they were really affecting, and you had some wonderful old footage of Ellis Island also to, to match it. What were the major political beliefs of the anarchists? Well, I mean, pretty much anarchists believe that less government is better government. But I mean, the, the, the guiding principles above all are the idea of mutual aid, which was Kropotkin, the famous Russian anarchist. He believed that pretty much people are not necessarily at each other's throat. That people aren't born with this aggressive nature that if they're free of the need to obtain food, of finding a place to live in, if these are provided for, then people get along. It's only when, you know, you have a capitalist class who makes makes these things into marketable commodities that people are at each other's throats. That's, I think, one of the chief tenets of anarchism and also the authoritarian aspect. You know, once somebody gets a little taste of power, whether it's uh, Donald Trump or whether it's a policeman or policewoman, that those people want to exercise control. And that essentially is what anarchists are always fighting against. The idea that you don't need somebody to put a ring in your nose and lead you around and basically say, I am great, believe me, because I'll save you. Anarchists, you know, it's the old anarchist slogan, no God, no master. Uh, were most of the Jewish anarchists atheists? Oh, all the, absolutely. 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 Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We're all atheists. And now, of course, we know from history that the Marxists and anarchists have long had an abrasive history with each other, going back to Marx and Bakunin, as you said. Can you talk a little bit more about what the political and historical differences were? Well, I think, you know, when you look at Marx's theory that, you know, you'll achieve a state eventually where government will just dissolve, and anarchists always said, no. Once you establish what Marx and, you know, Lenin called the dictatorship of the proletariat, you created a new class of authority figures who will never give up their power. So that was a traditional clash between the communists and the anarchists. You know, the well, just to take it to the, to the other side, I guess the communist argument is that anarchism is all well and good, but it can't just magically happen, that it required a dictatorship of the proletariat in order to combat the imperialist and capitalist forces. Yeah. Anarchists would argue that education... It's an incremental uh, process that you don't necessarily need to, to, to gain control of the masses that, you know, just by discussing, by talking, by creating the idea that anarchism is something that is not going to happen overnight. It's slow. You know, it, it, it's really a slow process because people really have to understand that self-critical, critical thinking is key to establishing any kind of uh, livable world. Many of the anarchists believed in, as you say, communal family and work arrangements. How did they put their ideas into motion in Russia and the U.S.? Not so much in Russia. I mean, Russia was, I think, pretty, pretty impossible. Okay. I mean, here you had Ferrer schools, the free-thinking schools that were established by anarchists here. They created, uh, within labor unions... They created a situation where their voices were heard. Needle trades, I mean, the anarchists were very influential in the needle trades. An important anarchist institution in New York City was the Free Voice of Labor. And it wasn't just a political paper, it was also cultural, right? And it ran from 1890 to 1977. Yeah. You don't see papers like that anymore. Even like when I was a kid, I used to go down to the candy store, I lived in working class Brooklyn, to get a copy of the. Uh, Jewish Daily Forward in Yiddish, mm -hmm. my grandma. Yeah, I remember um, that. Now, you don't see papers like that anymore. You know, I mean, even, even the Jewish Daily Forward today is kind of like mainstream. So it was a unique paper in, in that sense. It promulgated the anarchist line, but also it provided a, you know, a kind of platform to discuss personal problems, to encourage readers to be creative, 
to develop critical thinking. And these things don't exist today to the degree they did back then. You know, in your documentary, you have a clip from a remarkable Yiddish film called Uncle Moses, which depicts the conflict between a paternalistic Jewish sweatshop owner and a union organizer. And the union man says of Uncle Moses, a synagogue he'll buy for you and then attend your funerals. (laughs) (laughs) Just a great clip and a great film. I wanted to see more of it. Is is that film available for viewing somewhere? It's kind of an extraordinary document. Yes, I forgot the name. Yeah, there's a wonderful woman, a pioneer in the collection of these old Yiddish films. Yeah, so that was a thriving industry. I I knew about the theater. I didn't know about the movies. So I guess it was a, a lot of it was based on the stage plays. Yeah, I mean that was a whole whole Yiddish theater. I mean, actually, just as an aside, we knew Sidney Lumet well, and we took Sidney back to the Lower East Side because Sidney was a child actor in the Yiddish theater. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a child actor in the Yiddish theater. And basically, you know, he knew all about, he knew that era back and forth, in and out. When I was a kid, I was very impressed by oh, the work of Paul Goodman and uh, A.S. Neal with Summerhill. I was interested in the film saying that the anarchists ran their own elementary schools, like the uh, Ferrer Modern School. Can you tell us a little bit about how those were run and set up? The whole Summerhillian concept, yes. I mean... Children would not be forced to study. They would create their own syllabus. They didn't deal with teachers as authority figures. You know, I think they called them by their first name. I mean, back then, this was kind of astonishingly uh, weird. And mm. School was a place where you went and you listened to the teacher and you did you know, your work and you, you didn't say anything unless you were called upon to say something. So this was a totally foreign concept at the time and obviously created a lot of backlash too. And the cafes were also an important vector of social dissemination of ideas as well, weren't they? Yeah, as they always were in anarchist uh, culture. There were a lot of Café Royale. These were places that anarchists gathered to discuss politics, culture, literary stuff. Yeah, that was a, uh, they were an interesting phenomenon. I love the description in the film where someone says, yes, Charlie the waiter was the nerve center of communications. <laughs> you gave your message yeah, to Charlie. Charlie and then, yeah, Charlie knew it all. Yeah. Yeah, and he, and he would uh, disseminate. How did World War I affect the movement? Well, I mean, it, could have, it created a, a problem. I mean, because, you know, right away, everybody flag-waving, everybody begins to salute, all, you know, pretty much join now help defend democracy. Anarchists didn't believe that. I mean, anarchists believed that, you know, the war was a function of capitalism and capitalists. Working people were cannon fodder to be used to further whatever capitalist intentions there were. So the anarchists, like Emma Goldman, basically said no. And, you know, this was sedition. And this was, uh, this was an offense that could be, uh, you could be jailed for. So folks like Emma Goldman were arrested. You know, printing presses were destroyed. I mean, they demolished anything to do with the dissemination of anarchist literature, and they rounded up a whole bunch of people, Emma Goldman included, and they shipped them back to Russia. You made the film in 1980. What prompted the re-release? We had been talking to the Harvard Film Archives for a long time. But along the way, Another old friend of ours by the name of Sandra Schulberg, she's one of the people who said, listen, we must preserve all the, these old materials because the way they were shot, you know, mm. or the 16 millimeter of video, they won't last. And it's true. I mean, the stuff falls apart. She hooked up with Harvard Film Archives. Uh, Harvard Film Archives funded the restoration effort by Sandra and Indy Collect to turn Free Voice of Labor into a 4K format high-quality format. Why do you think that tradition is important to us now? What's going on today? People led by the nose. 70 million people actually believe this, the, the moron in the White House. Listen, you know, the president just called Antifa scum. Hey, let me tell you, the, from what I know, the old anarchists or the anarchists that came from my generation, which was 60s and 70s, they would applaud Antifa. It's anti-fascist. I mean, you know, either you're anti-fascist or you're pro-fascist. I happen to be anti-fascist, so I'm not embarrassed to, to say I support Antifa. I mean, once you, you, you're able to think critically, then you, 
begin to understand that, you know, life's possibilities are unlimited. And I think that's the kind of vision that anarchism can provide. That's why I think it's an enduring legacy that we also look to the past to see how, we, how all these other generations of people uh, practiced it. How can listeners see the film? www.pacificstreetfilms.com. And it's, uh, it's available for streaming? Yeah. And g- give us the, the name of the company again? It's Pacific Street Films. Well, thanks very much, Joel. I've been talking with Joel Sucher, director of Free Voice of Labor, The Jewish Anarchists. And we'll go out with an anarchist labor song that translates as, Forward brothers in the ranks, placards out in front, masses marching, marching, marching. Forward in the struggle for victory, one who fears or who is frightened and won't join us in the struggle, was born a slave and should stay at home. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do Put it in our minds Surely things will work out They do it every time The world won't get no better If we just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me Change again, change again, change again.